0: on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at FishingBooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host,
1: Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Today in the show, I am joined by Nate and Thomas Crick, hosts of Identical Draw to discuss their experience as young 20-somethings diving headfirst into whitetail land management and their experiences managing their family's 80-acre farm. All right, welcome back to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light, and we are continuing here with our whitetail land management series of sorts that I'm doing here this month. And it's kind of taken a kind of an average Joe spin because last week it was me and Tony sharing our experiences. And this week I got the idea to talk to a couple folks who I don't think we would normally be looking to for advice on how to dive into whitetail land management. Usually, you know, usually the people we talk to about these things are consultants, They're experts in the field who've been doing it for 40 years. These are guys who own 2,000 acres and kill big bucks every year, yada, yada, yada. But what about the rest of us? What about young people? What about folks who don't know everything and who are just trying to figure it out? I think that is an interesting perspective to explore, too. And that's why today I asked Nate and Thomas Crick to join me on the show These two guys, they are brothers, they are in their early 20s, they host a show on their YouTube channel called Identical Draw, and they are diehard deer hunters, and a handful of years ago, their family decided they were going to buy a family farm somewhere, and Nate and Thomas were going to be in charge of the search for that farm, and they were going to be in charge of managing it, managing it, turning this into something that could be great for their whitetail hunting, and for the other goals they had as a family for this place. And as 20 year olds, when this all started, I think that probably was a pretty intimidating thing. And I'm interested in that. I'm interested in what it looks like for a young couple kids to try to figure this kind of stuff out. That can be kind of intimidating, figuring out how to plan a whitetail management, you know, the series of years, what are you going to do over the next decade? How are you going to plant food plots, do timber work, burn anything like that? that, that that's a lot. For me to consider 34 years old, I know a lot of 45 and 50-year-olds who probably feel the same way, let alone if you were 20. And these guys did it. They dove in. They read everything they could. They talked to everyone they could. They brought in some people to help point them in the right direction. And they learned and they learned and they learned. And over the last three years, they have been enjoying the fruits of that labor and those learnings. And that's what we're going to discuss today. We're going to find out how Thomas and Nate figured this all out themselves. And in short, I think it's pretty inspiring. You know, if you're a young person yourself, if you're 20 or 25 or 30, and you've been seeing people on TV doing this land management thing, and maybe your family has property, or maybe you have been in a position where maybe you could buy your own little piece but that seems like a whole lot to consider and is pretty intimidating. Well, I think this conversation today might just empower you to give it a shot. And if you're in a different position, but still have been wanting to dive into this world, I think what Nate and Thomas have to share uh, will be very useful to you as well. They share with me a lot about what they've learned on the side of food plots. We discussed a lot about timber management and what you can do with very limited resources to really improve a property. With timber management, we talked about fire and what it takes to kind of go down that road and begin trying something like that, uh, and a lot more too. So I enjoyed this one. I think you all will as well. This isn't like, yeah, uh, you know, this isn't Craig Harper diving in from a university professor standpoint, right? This is real people sharing real experiences, and uh, you know, I think that's something that's that's pretty cool to dive into. So. I will give you two other quick reminders before we get into this one. Number one, if you are not already subscribed to the Wired to Hunt newsletter, please go do that. Go over to themeateater.com and you'll see options in the menu there to subscribe. That's where we send out our weekly updates on the new content, the new articles we're publishing, the new podcasts. If you miss any of those new videos, uh, I I send a weekly little note, I guess, with updates from my world or interesting things going on or suggestions or tips or things I might recommend you guys think about this time of year. Tony Peterson jumps on there sometimes too. So make sure you're signed up for that. Speaking of videos, want to remind you all that Tony and I and the team are continuing to pump out weekly how-to videos over on the Wired to Hunt YouTube channel. So go on over to YouTube, search for Wired to Hunt, hit subscribe then we're cranking them out it's it's a lot of work. the team's putting in the hours to get quick helpful and and I think you know pretty pretty um oh heck, I don't know useful I guess maybe is the simple word I'm looking for useful, quick videos that I think will give you quick tips and suggestions to point you in the right direction, whether it's the off season right now or as we move into the summer and then the fall, the information you need to take into the field right away so uh That's all I got for you today, guys. Appreciate you listening. Let's get to my chat with Nate and Thomas Crick. All right. Hear me now. I've got Nate and Thomas Crick. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me.
2: Yeah, you bet. We're excited to be on here. Oh, yeah.
1: I think you guys are the perfect people to talk to today for the conversation I want to have um, because I don't know how to put this. In a way that doesn't sound slightly offensive, but, <laughs> but I think you guys are, are kinda just rosy eyed knuckleheads, just like me. Really? And by that, I mean like you've dove into a big, crazy project without a ton of experience, just wanting to learn a lot. When I, when you think about your Kansas City project and your, your dreams to transform this piece of property, does what I said, does that sound accurate?
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, That's, like, perfect, Mark, because we didn't, like, have the the grandpa that had a couple thousand acres. Like, we just hunted some, some like, public land and a little bit of private that we had permission on. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we had, I mean, zero land managing um, experience before, I mean, 2019. So, yeah, still really new. Definitely uh, feel a lot better where we are now as land managers than we were three years ago. But, yeah. Well, I
1: think that one of the things that at least I felt when I started doing this kind of stuff, and I'm I'm guessing a lot of other people out there feel too, is, you know, when you hear about most whitetail land management or whitetail improvement projects or advice, you know, it's coming from these people who have been doing it for thirty years or forty years, and they've got thousands of acres. Or if you watch somebody on TV, they've got two thousand acres, and they're doing this perfect thing, and their their food plots look like perfectly manicured golf greens, and they've got. 27 different box blinds across it, and they shoot 180-inch bucks four times a year and on and on and on and on. And it seems both so outside of the realm of possibility, and it seems intimidating when I hear about the 19 different fertilizer types and the seven different tractors I need to have and yada, yada, yada. I think all of that can, for some people, be paralyzing, and it keeps people from ever wanting to actually dive in and, and try it if they just have 30 acres or 80 acres or 60 acres and a four wheeler. Um, And I think your story is one that I think, and hopefully we're going to find out here in a second. I think it kind of flips that in its head. Um, So, so can you, can you just set the stage for me? Like how did the Kansas 80 come about? Like, I know that this is a a property that your, your family bought and you guys have kind of taken the lead on it, but how did this, this whole idea come together?
2: Yeah. So Basically, I mean, we've been avid into the outdoors, um, for forever, it seems. Um, and so I don't know, for us, it was just like this, like general, like accumulating want to like have our own ground. Cause like we have, we have a lot of generous friends that would let us hunt, but man, in the back of our minds for so long. We were like, man, wouldn't it be sweet to have just a, even a small just a little chunk of ground that we could manage ourselves like actually like have some food sources and do all this stuff and so kind of we we sat down with the parents because obviously um what we were teenagers basically at the time we were trying to figure this all out we're like obviously we have like 10 bucks to our name so luckily we have amazing parents that also wanted property just for like the family's sake and just like kind of a family legacy that you can start and have for generations and stuff like that um and so we kind of combined our efforts and um, man, I, I had, luckily I was friends with a few different, uh, land agents in, uh, Nebraska, Iowa, and Kansas. And I kind of, I mean, I went to look at a lot of properties and I, I kind of told them, I was like, Hey, this is what the family's looking for. It needs to be like less than this far away from the house. So we wanted it to not be a super long drive away from our home home. And then we wanted to have certain structure for, um, not only just like family, like we'd like to have a, like a build side, like we. uh, could build a shed, so we could have family stay down there sometimes. Um, and then also we wanted to have the hunting side. And so I told all those guys like, "Hey, if you see this perfect property of things we want on it, uh, line up. You better, I better be the first one you text." And so True sure enough, yeah. it should be noted that I mean that we were looking pretty aggressively like at at properties for two years uh, leading up to when we purchased eighty. So. We kinda of, I mean, it wasn't just like a right away thing that we mm-hmm. found this. So you yeah. always have people reaching out asking like how how we decided to buy a property because one, it's a huge financial investment, but then secondly it's just like you want it to be the perfect thing if you're gonna put the money down. So mm-hmm. we always just had a kind of a scale of one to five, what's most important and then every time we'd roll up to a property we'd um, we'd kinda of go through that list and it kinda of made it easy for us to yeah. decide. So and the white tail side of me <laughs> Like, we grew up in Nebraska, pretty good whitetail hunting, um, but, like, not to offend my Nebraska friends, but it's not on the level of, like, an Iowa and a Kansas, (laughs) Um, and so I was looking in Iowa and Kansas, because we live live down in, like, southeastern Nebraska, so, like, Iowa and Kansas, we're getting to both those states, like, within an hour, so I was, like, the whitetail side of me is, like, okay, I'm definitely going to be looking in Iowa and Kansas a little more than Nebraska, um, just because I know they, they manage their state a little different, and they grow getting big whitetails. Um, so sure enough, one of my buddies from uh, a land real estate company texted me. was actually, we were at um, the Archer Trade Association uh, trade show in 2019 and he's like, we got a property, you wanna see this. And he's like, it's gonna go like on the market market like next week and like, everything's going to be shown. Like they have a bunch of big buck trail cam picks and stuff. I was like, so if you want like stab at that thing, I get down here fast. And so we, uh, that's what we did. We were there early that next week. And I mean, we saw the property, loved it. Parents loved it. Um, and we shot, we shot low and we got it. So, uh, (laughs) that's, that's basically, it was freaking perfect.
1: So what were those, you mentioned you've got a bunch of different criteria that you were looking at and you were kind of doing like a one to five scale of what's most important, everything like that. When you were looking for this perfect property that would both achieve your whitetail goals, but also the family goals, what were those perfect things you were looking to check the boxes on?
2: Yeah. Um, so it, it was there were kind of like two lists or like what the parents wanted to see and then what me and they wanted to see. And then we kind of met in the middle, but um Ideally, we wanted water on it, some sort of water, whether it be a pond or or a creek. And we've got a creek on ours, basically running all the way north to south. That most years is uh, has water in it, uh, flowing the whole whole time. So um, that we check the box there. Um, distance from home, uh, right at two hours. Um, we didn't want to go close to three. Uh, two hour drive to us is is much more doable than adding an hour. Or so. It worked for our, for our distance, um, size wise, um, wasn't going to break the bank. Um, so I don't know, Nate, what else you want to add? We wanted definitely just diversity on it. Um, so we noticed on this piece we had, it was mainly like at least 65, 70 acres of the 80 acres that we own is like all timber. Um, we love that. Um, and then there was also like some, um, just grassy fields and stuff like that, that we, we were picturing, okay, easily food plots, but also just good. Um, just a good grassy mixture up there on top. And so those are kind of the things we wanted to be able to access it pretty easily. And one of the sides has a road that we can, that runs right along the side of it. So um, we didn't have to worry about not being able to get in there certain times of the year for it being like really rainy or something like that. But uh, we wanted to, the parents really wanted a uh, build location, kind of like I already mentioned for like a shed or a cabin at some point. Um, and so, yeah, those were kind of the checkbox and this one just, This one just met it was in the price range and also just the size. Like, I mean, I think that's one thing that Thomas and I really try to stress through our channels is like small properties can be deadly. You don't need anything crazy, so this eighty acres fit that perfectly as well.
1: It it certainly seems like it from the you know from watching the videos and everything like that. Now you mentioned there's there's the stream, there's this road access, there's timber, there's grass. When you stepped foot on the property for the first time after you guys had, you know, it became your family's property Mm -hmm. and you stepped foot and you realized, wow, this is, this is ours. What did that, can you remember what that first day felt like? Or those first moments stepping foot out there, walking across it? Was it, was it overwhelming? Was it just exciting? Uh, what was going through your guys' heads?
2: Yeah. It was like, where do we start? Um, Like we, (laughs) Uh, since I, identical draw was the thing back then we, we filmed it. So you can actually watch like our first time walking it as landowners on our YouTube channel. And it's, we like, I go back and watch that episode because sometimes you get just so in the mix of trying to kill a whitetail, and you just gotta, uh, get that feeling of what it felt like the first time you were on it. But, um, yeah, it was, it was a really snowy day. Actually the first day, it was, gosh, it was like six straight, six to eight inches down, I think. Um, so it was just like, where do we start and like, let's just see what this place has because uh, we did do a walkthrough before we uh, put an offer on and we just, it was a quick, like, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes to an hour walkthrough. And, um, I think it was just excitement of what we were gonna, what, what we were gonna find. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, right off the bat, you could, uh, just see the deer travel was like really thick. So that was exciting. Um, our dad is definitely a, a big turkey hunter. He he hasn't he hasn't dabbled as much into there, but I remember seeing some turkey tracks and I remember him, him being really excited about that. But I do think the overwhelming thing was like, man, like what are we going to turn this into? Like it felt like we had like a uh, just a clean slate. Like you have almost 80 acres of just pure timber that you can just open up where you want to open up, leave thick where you want to leave thick, and um, I don't know. It just seemed like a mixture of like really daunting and super exciting. That I mean this ground that we're walking on is ours. Like, uh, I mean, it was was a really surreal, crazy feeling.
1: Mm, I can imagine. I mean, I've, I've, I've had sort of like that. Like when we, when I got to be a part of the back 40 with mediator and, and I got to essentially steward and head up that project. I, I was there for all those types of things and I put in, helped put in the offer and I got to be on the property and all that kind of stuff. So I was the pseudo owner of the farm for two years and and I felt a kind of similar thing like that, but, but knowing that there was going to be this heartbreak some number of years down the road when I'd have to walk away. So you guys got to get to keep enjoying it. So I'm jealous about that one. Um, But I do know one of the very first things I had to be thinking about during that was right off the gate, you know, before I even started making plans or thinking about plans, I, I remember sitting down and thinking through, okay, before I can Know where I'm going, or before I can do anything, I need to know where I'm trying to go. I need to know what the goals are going to be for this property explicitly. Is it just to kill the biggest buck ever? Is it to kill a lot of deer? Is it to have deer and turkeys and squirrels? Is it to do this and that and this and that and have all these different people and all these different things? There's a lot of different questions I was working through when trying to figure out what we should do with that place. So, what was that process like for you guys? How did you guys go about figuring out what the goals were? Was that simple? was that like a debate between you and the family? Uh, what did that look like? And then where'd you end up? Like, what was the, what was the goal list once you guys came to some kind of agreement? If, if you did.
2: Yeah. So goals. I mean, definitely right off the bat, we, uh, we did think about management things, but it was also like, man, the parents like really wanted like a shed or something down here. Cause it's like, you know, we come down here, there's nowhere to uh, like if you work all day, there's nowhere to shower, like, there's nowhere to just like, like, chill out, take a nap, eat, or anything. So, it's like, okay, that was, that was definitely a high goal, but that was like kind of out of me and Tom's realm back then because, again, we were just poor kids back then. Um, so it's like, okay, parents, you can work on putting maybe a shed up on the property somewhere. Um, and there were a lot of discussions about where we're gonna put the shed, um, and when we're gonna, <laughs> it was a tricky situation, Mark, because they're they're uh, funding the project, but. At the same time, we're trying to convince them on when to do it, like, like during mm. the summertime, uh, not during the fall. It actually, ended up happening like in the smack dab of October, <laughs> um, which, which didn't actually have a huge effect, but uh, it was definitely like one of those like, uh, I'm just gonna, we're gonna have to let you do this one, Dad, because you did buy it. So we're just gonna. Yeah. There were a couple of sits like mid October, late October. You could just hear like the construction guys' music blaring. Yeah. Like a couple hundred yards away, and you're like, okay, like this might have an effect, probably have an effect, we'll see, don't really have a choice here, but um, I don't know, so th- that was definitely something we discussed a lot. Um, management side of things, we really like had no idea where to start, so I think one of our best um, ideas we had was that first spring we had the property, we had a few people from QDMA, now NDA, come down, and walk the property with us, um, Matt Ross being one of them, and he is just a wealth of knowledge, and mm-hmm. we walked the whole 80 with him, and man, like, I think that really lit our management fire for like our management goals. Um, Just because he's like a wealth of knowledge. He knew every tree we were seeing. He knew like good deer food. He knew the structure we wanted on that property. So like that's when our management goals really kicked in. But other goals, I mean, obviously we were just like – hunting was like number one, like let's kill a giant white tail, big Kansas white tail down here. Um, we didn't really have like, we didn't need to be like, okay, this next season, we need to kill like a 180 inch deer. We are just like, let's just, um, try to hunt this as well as possible and just like be really, really patient with it. Um, but yeah, the, the goals were definitely some of those things the shed and just different management stuff, but it's still like a work in progress. Like our, our goals are kind of changing throughout, but also like we're achieving some goals and then, like a year later down the road, we realize that, okay, that's not really a goal we want to attain. We're going to switch it up a little bit. So yeah, some of them we reach and some of them we don't.
1: Hmm. So what about that planning process? You mentioned how Matt, you know, came out, walked it with you, helped you kind of get a better sense of what you had and what you could have. But, but walk me through, you know, what that plan, you know, how that plan came together and how that's evolved.
2: Yeah, he. I would say he just really opened up our eyes. All all we had like really known um, was was what we had like watched on outdoor TV. Like, how are these like food plot everywhere that there's any uh, crack in the timber anywhere that you can fit uh, plow with any sunlight? Um, that's like what we had thought before. Um, Matt introduced us to TSI, all these different things. Um, but he like one of the biggest things he uh, mentioned to us was. Uh, kind of separating the 80 into different management units and going about it that way, which was, I'd say, the most helpful thing he, he told us the whole mm-hmm. time. So we broke 80 acres into six different management u- units. Um, and then we would decide what we were going to do in each unit, whether we were going to completely leave it alone or food plot here, some TSI work here, maybe a prescribed fire. Um, so that kind of helped us really just slow down and look at it uh, big picture. Yeah, and I would say... Um, one, one of the things, the first thing he was like, he he was like, the first thing I would do guys is make roads on the property, make a road around the entire perimeter, make roads throughout. And when he told me that the first time I was like, eh, like, I, I I don't completely agree with that being the first thing that you should do. But now three years later, I'm like 100%, like if you're a new landowner, put roads on that property so you can get around. Um, that is like.
1: Why is that so important? Because I bet you there's a lot of people skeptical, just like you were.
2: Yeah. So one fire breaks. If you're going to do prescribed fire, roads are perfect fire and, breaks. Yeah, and if I mean that was like one of the biggest things that um, he he and so many other land managers we talked to since have just like prescribed fire is just like one of the if you ask any land managers, it's it's in their top three things that you want to do with mm-hmm. a property. So mm-hmm. um, it makes sense just to have that that road. Yeah. So. At, that and then just being able to access different pieces whether you shoot a deer back there and don't have to drag it out a half mile or if you're carrying a 20 pound chainsaw and fuel and water and traps and all that stuff during a hot day or something i mean just getting around places has been like we didn't have like really really decent roads until this last year and it has made like a night and day difference just with like being able to finish things faster and then also like with our 80 it's so thick the structure's so thick that Deer use them as highways. Like if you cut something, if you cut a path through the 80, the structure is so thick around it that it becomes a highway. Like I walked some roads this this uh, off season that we cut, and then I had I hadn't been there since like probably last spring. And I mean scrapes all over it, rubs running up and down it because deer can get there now and they couldn't get there before. So yeah, I mean it just made our our work go way faster.
1: Hmm. So these management units that Matt recommended, you guys use. Uh, why why does that matter? Why is that something that you guys actually found really valuable? And then can you kind of describe to me what those management units look like on in your specific example?
2: Yeah, so we we really uh, broke up the management units um, uh, all because of Matt. Because like we'd be just walking in and he would just like stop and be like, "All right, we're in a brand new management unit." Just because he could tell uh, timber change, structure change of the forest floor. Um, but what they look like are either basically would differentiate them because uh, there'd be really good um, like like oaks and really good timber and then you'd go over uh, one ridge and then it 'd be crappy crappy walnut maybe a uh, honey locust hedge so he 'd differentiate how we 're going to handle the differences there and what we want to utilize what we want to get rid of so um We always just, we, we went, we came on the 80 thinking like, okay, it's just all timber. That's, it was just all one unit to us. But, uh, him deciding, Hey, this is completely different. This needs to be managed completely different. Um, was huge. Yeah. So like we had, again, we had six different units, like unit one. I remember unit one and two, they were in like our Southeast corner, which has been like traditionally, like we have like the, some of the most sun back there. And then also like, it's like a cedar, just like really good, like bedding area. And so we kind of like designated those. Okay. as like, we're not going to like really hunt those and we're not really going to, um, like go in there very often. That's kind of be the sanctuary kind of. And, um, those things have actually changed because we killed two bucks in December and the unit won this last year. But like, basically like it gave us like really specific jobs we needed to do so we could go through every single management unit and then have tasks we wanted to do in each one of those so like management unit three on our property it was on the west side of the ground and it was all, all like food plots so it's like okay there's zero timber cutting here but like in april may you're going to need to figure out some food plots and maybe you want to do the fall plot it, yeah plots. it wasn't food plot when we bought it it was all just pasture ground the the owner previous just ran cattle through it all so yeah. no food there we we just uh, got the soil tested and um, That was a easy management unit. To not and have. again, for people who might um, own smaller tracts or just buying property, we have no farming equipment. We just talk to a local farmer, and he'll come over. We pay him hourly, cover all the expenses for stuff, and he comes over and he puts in beans, corn, um, Egyptian wheat, stuff like that. Um, then comes back and sprays it yeah. and checks. So out that's his. been super easy. So yeah, that, that was like management unit, unit three. Where um, and then management unit six was in our northeast corner. And that was like, okay, this is like super mature Walnut Oak. He's like, okay, you don't really like, this would be a really good, um, hunting unit because like you have like a really interesting Creek system right here that the deer would probably use, but like you're like, you should get a, like a forester in here to harvest some of this timber. So it just gave us a really good way to break up the unit into smaller sections and just have really, really set goals. instead of like looking at a whole lady be like, wow, like this is so much. What should we, where should we even start? Just like, okay. Let's start at unit one today. And then next week we can maybe work on food plus unit three, stuff like that. So,
1: yeah, that, uh, that seems like it'd make it a lot less intimidating. Yeah. Um, that makes, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Pay attention here. Cause this is a hell of a good service. It's called the wellness company. Picture this, okay, you wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription. And you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, it's not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at UrgentCareKit.com slash eater and use promo code eater. That's promo code eater at UrgentCareKit.com slash eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you oughta, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust Resistant griddle. Now this this is a good innovation here and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready not rusty. Now everything the problem with griddles, everything rusts No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, The reason they don't is because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill, will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store system, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle.
1: So then back to developing this plan. So other than Matt being there on the ground with you and, and showing you stuff, uh, what, were the, what were the most useful resources or people or books or I don't know, what were the other things that you were utilizing in those, those early months when you were trying to figure out what the heck do I do with all this ground and all this everything? <laughs> what were the yeah. most helpful things to get started? Well,
2: it came, uh, it was nice Mark because you were uh, on your first year of the back 42. So I'd be watching those YouTube videos. Like what's, what's Mark dealing with? And he's trying to start this <laughs> yeah. uh, mower. And, <laughs> and then I felt better about what we were doing on the 80. And <laughs> hey, the first yeah. day we started up our mower, we had issues too. Yeah. Um, but, It's just like, uh, I don't know, the the new things, we our our big-time mentors, I would say, in the outdoor industry or the Harlem Bowhunter guys, um, so Sean and Mike, they've been a huge resource, and obviously they gave us tips on some timber things and also just prescribed fire, opened up our eyes big-time on there. Um, But um, Land and Legacy guys have been pretty huge with um, land managing over the past few years as well. And I would say that was more in the last few years we've really – hooked on to some of their, their thoughts and ideas and the way they manage properties. But early on, it was a lot of reading and then having that farmer help yeah. us really is, is, he helped us with our first prescribed fire. He helped us um, understand where a good food plot start, um, starting point would be uh, for our bigger plots. And then we, that first year we did also have, um, gosh, just one uh, clover plot. Mm. Um, he helped us get in there, uh, till it up a little bit. And we, we decided uh, that first year that we were going to do minimal change because we wanted to see really how the deer use the property, property naturally. And I, I I think we did, I think that was a good decision because, um, we did, uh, we did end up having like a really, really good hunt, um, early October and, uh, we haven't killed a, an early season buck since. Um, but we just kind of laid off of it. And besides doing maybe some little cutting here and there during the, during the summer and, and, putting in food plots, we just said, hey, we're going to we're gonna see what this 80 does naturally. Yeah. Matt, having Matt down to the property definitely, like, lit the fire on us, though, to, like, learn the timber and the plants there. Um, and one of the most helpful things I had on my phone was actually, like, a plant identification app. And I'm like, hey, if you don't want to pay for, pay for the subscription, that's up to you. But <laughs> the few bucks a month has paid off huge for me. Um, so I'm just, like, I'm a freaking plant and tree nerd now I basically just take pics of everything I don't know and then when I get service I can download those and see what they are and then I literally will google different resources and try to find out if they're good or bad for deer so it's been it's been a lot of that just like own research and just doing some digging but um there have been like a few different books um like you can get different books of like trees like the eastern half of the United States things like that but like finding it and like equating it to whitetails and food sources is tough like finding what trees and plants are really solid for for whitetails and different, um, I mean, any type of animal that's using the property and stuff like that. So um, really, I mean, just having those few individuals that helped us out, and we'd we'd send Matt, we still send Matt texts every once in a while. Be like, is this good? Should we get rid of it? Should we keep it around? Um, things like that. So it's just little by little. Um, that's that's the biggest thing because it, I mean, coming to a, an eighty acres or however big property somebody owns, I mean, there's going to be hundreds of different things that you probably don't know on, on the plant and tree side of things. So just pick off a few every single time, figure out if they're helping deer or not helping deer, and then deal with them as you wish.
1: Yeah, baby steps. I think that's yeah. that's definitely something I learned too. You know, I don't know if you guys have seen this book, but Dr. Craig Harper has a great book um, about food plots and early secessional plants and grasses. And within that one, he's got a bunch of species um id pages i guess where it breaks down okay this is what this plant looks like and then a whole bunch of different nutritional information and how preferred it is by deer and wildlife and other stuff that was a good one for me with the back 40 um i used one of those apps too i can't remember the name of it so i think it's iNaturalist is the one i've used um and that one was pretty good um but i want to i want to go back to something you mentioned a second ago because it sounds like uh something I wish I could find at a, I don't know, Cabela's or Bass Pro Shops or, I don't know, on the meat eater store. You mentioned that you have got a farmer who helps plant your food plots and tells you what to plant. How can I get me one of those? That would be very helpful. (laughs) In all seriousness, Uh, how how did you go about, you know, developing a relationship with this person enough so that he would help you out? Because that is a huge thing, I think, for a lot of people that most probably aren't, you know, able to either find somebody like that or have the confidence to ask for that kind of help. How did that come about for you guys?
2: What's really worked well for us. Mark is, is actually getting these contacts through land agents in the area because they're talking to so many different farmers and they, most of the time, that's, that's how we got um, our farmer. who's helping us. Um, Most of the time they're pretty integrated to the area and they know who's going to be willing to, to help you out or, um, work some hourly rate out for you so mm-hmm. I'd say land agency and number one our our uh, farmer Kevin he's I mean he's awesome he he also shows us things which is like he has he has patience for us 20 year olds to like actually like dive into learning the equipment and why he's spraying this or why like how deep he's planting seeds which is like a huge I mean huge help but he's also just an avid whitetail hunter I asked him I'm pretty sure it was last year I was like how like did you hunt like much this season oh I hunted every day I was like, every day. Are you serious? Every day? he's like, he's like a diehard. I think he does a lot of like traditional bowhanging. He he literally hunted every day of the season. I'm like, okay, that's, that's awesome. Like he, he also, I mean, if you hunt every day of the season, I mean, even if you hunt half the days of the season, you're going to really know whitetail as well. And so like, he's coming at it with like a really whitetail mind frame too. But yeah, we just got lucky with the uh, land agent that helped us out with the property, just knew him in the area um, and so it would just like asking around, I think even just knocking on some doors on our neighbors, we're really fortunate, even if we didn't have, um, our buddy, Kevin, I'm sure there's some neighbors in the area that we've rec- created relationships with, um, that would totally help us out. That was one thing that we kind of haven't talked about. Like the second time we came down here, Thomas and I went around to every school neighbor on the 80 and knocked on doors and shook their hands and said, we're the new guys in town. It's nice to meet you. Um, this is kind of what we're about and stuff like that. And just like. Having those relationships, getting some uh, phone numbers here and there has, I mean, paid dividends. But, yeah, I would just, man, reach out to anybody in the area because you will they're out there. There's more There's more of them out there. That can also lead to um, different things down the road. Maybe they want to bail some, like, uh, CRP on your ground or anything like that. Um, or, or if you want to, like, have some cows roam around, um, there's all different avenues that can lead from that relationship. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's, it's hard to understate just how important that is. I mean, there's, it's just hard not to understate how important that is. Cause there's not only everything you describe, but also just like all the weird things that can happen when you hunt next to other people and, you know, deer crossing property lines or other people showing up or just a million things that if you have a relationship, it makes so much easier to deal with. Um, yeah.
2: Yeah. so yeah, the other day we had a prescribed fire and it was at night and I got texts from like every single neighbor in the area. Like we, we try to text a lot of the people that like the smoke would be going on to or something. Just let them know. I was like, man, if someday the 80s starts lighting on fire, we are going to have that taken care of because the neighbors are watching out for us. Yeah. yeah. And it was at, it was at night. Yeah. So That's
1: great. It's yeah. a great thing to have. Uh, mm-hmm. so let's talk a little bit more about the food because I mean, if there's, if there's anything that deer hunting land managers like to geek out about, it's food plots. All right. Um how how did that start for you? I know you had somebody there who who had some experience who was able to help direct you guys and, and do a bunch of that. Um, but what do those first food plots look like? What did you guys choose? How did you plan, you know, the shapes, the size, all that kind of stuff, and then how has that changed over the last two and a half, three years?
2: Yeah. Um again, it's like what did we see uh what did we see the H B guys filming their bucks over is like Hey, we got to do beans. We got to do, do what we see on the outdoor channel. So we did beans right away. And, um, we told Matt Ross that we were like, hey, we're just going to do, we're going to do beans in this big field. And he's like, why, like, why would you do, why would you do, <laughs> I was almost like taken back. We were like at breakfast drinking coffee. And I, I just said it like nonchalantly, like, oh, we're going to do a bean food plot. He's like, like, why would you do beans? Like, like you're, if you're going to manage this for, for, uh, for deer, like do something like a little extra maybe um something that like, they won't find on every other property mm-hmm. uh around that your neighbors have but um he wasn't like against it he was just like he just was asking the question um and we did end up doing beans um there but we we definitely um kind of changed it up with our clover plot and Nebraska game um we did uh yeah we did beans all i don't know was it maybe three acre our biggest plot is a three acre plot three to four acres and We did beans, um, both our first and second year and then switched it up, uh, this year. But yeah, that first year we did all beans and then clover, um, in one small spot. In those beans though, we did, we did strip some brassica mixed Mm -hmm. in there. So you kind of had strips. It was kind of like you'd have 10 feet of beans. Well, we had beans all through the summer. And then in the fall, um, Kevin, our farmer came through and like put a few, um, like kind of late season, um, food plot stuff. So we had like, uh, peas in there, winter peas. And we had, uh. We had the Nebraska mix in there, um, kind of stripped out in there. So that was it. I mean, it was basically, we kind of just took like the easy approach. Like, okay, we don't really need to remove any timber. Let's just do a big old food plot right here. Just, I mean, I don't, I mean, whether you can find beans on our property or other properties, like it's, it's still a food source there right next to really good bedding. So yeah. we just kind of went at that. Yeah. Approach. And what makes it, um, extra good for the deer on our ground is that we just, we don't, we obviously don't cut it. We just leave it staining all, all through, uh, the fall through the winter so Mm -hmm. they definitely like hammer that um december and january yeah and then clover we only had um one clover plot that first year and it was we had to do a lot of timber removal to find this clover plot but it was kind of the we kind of went after with it being really easy to access um and then there were some really good um travel corridors through there um and so that that kind of led us to it wasn't like we weren't I don't know if we made like the most knowledgeable decision. It Like it, it, it paid off because it's still a really good spot, but we were just kind of like, okay, we need to remove quite a few trees, but it already looks like it's a really good travel route um, and be easy to get to. So that was kind of our, our basis of clover. And then we just know clover is just an easy one to do. Um, we just had that first year we had um, our farmer just till up that area. Um, so we made a road back there and he tilled it up so we could just frost seed clover. And it's been it's been a money plot for us the last few years. We have not like shot a a buck like in the clover, but we've, we've, I shot mine this November, like right next to it. And then it's just been, it's been like doe central. So like, obviously if you have something that's like doe central in the October, November, then you start getting those bucks through there. Um, and so that's, that's basically, that was our first year and kind of like Tom said earlier, that first year we kind of just wanted to leave hands off. Don't do anything like crazy on the management side and just kind of see how the deer naturally use the property.
1: So you threw a bunch of stuff at the wall that year. Mm-hmm. What stuck the best? I mean, you mentioned that Clover turned out great, but what what were the big lessons learned? I guess from that first year of trying those different things.
2: Man, I I'd say obviously like the food sources were huge, like we, but uh, but I would almost say like not as not as big as we thought they were going to be, and we're just starting to get there because bucks like. Nobody, none of the deer knew that like associated the property with food because Mm -hmm. it had never really been there besides what, what was naturally there uh, with the browse. But, um, they just, we would not have like crazy nights where the, the bean plots were just absolutely full. Like that just never happened. And we're just starting to get there because now it's been, gosh, this will be our fourth spring Mm -hmm. that the fawns will have been born. So, um, if you're a four year old deer, then you've known the 80, how we've, Uh, how we've managed it so we're starting to starting to get that that h class up from uh our ownership but Mm -hmm. yeah i would say honestly the our second hunt ever on the 80 thomas shot a 150 inch buck coming out to the beans on october 3rd and i think that kind of ruined us for a little bit yeah like i think it was like oh my (laughs) gosh okay this is this is this is what we're talking about like kansas like I'm like so pumped about this, and I mean, don't get me wrong, it was like the best hunt ever. I mean, there was a massive cold front. It went like, I think we shot him on a Wednesday, or I think it was Wednesday. I think the Tuesday before was like 90 degrees, and that day it was like 40. So like cold front to the nines. You had a rainstorm that night, so like everything was like leading up to it. um And yeah, I mean that evening, a freaking 150 inch the biggest buck. I mean Thomas had shot at that point, walked out of. 10 yards right to a scrape tree we put up that evening and shot like hard shot. And it was like, man, like, this is it. This is all we have to do. And I think it like made us trust in like the food plot hunting too much. Um, definitely for the rest of that year. And then the next year it was like, we definitely had to like figure things out kind of reset our minds. Like, okay, that did happen, but like, don't think it did because that's still like, there are a lot of things that came up to that moment. Um, that were also going in our favor besides just sitting in a tree on a bean edge in early October. So it was, that was definitely a good thing, but I think we also did put too much emphasis on the food, but, um, those things definitely stuck. And then the I think one of the biggest things that stuck was just seeing how, um, the deer were using it, having a full year of trail cam picks all over the property that we could analyze and all that stuff. So, yeah. I would say, um, getting back to our goals, like what you uh, asked earlier, Mark, we, we did buy a little, I wouldn't say it's little, but it's just a, like a 26 inch uh, mower that we basically um, walked behind. And um, having that and creating paths um, was a huge, huge piece. And they kind of already talked on it. Like when we created a path, it became a highway. So figuring that out, um, we had never really seen that um, happen before on anything else we've hunted. So um, having that, that little um, walk behind mower was was huge yeah i mean to kind of paint the picture like so most of our 80 is like a 100 like 80 to 100 percent crown closure which means like it's basically all shaded so then um it's all shaded and then like up to like up to your waist basically you've got buck brush you have multi-floor rose M- Mizzou- uh, missouri gooseberry That's other right. raspberry so like i mean walking through anywhere most of those things have thorns that are getting you grabbing you um and like it's like like trudging basically so as soon as you mow like a path with like two inches of grass at the bottom now like that's why it becomes a highway because obviously deer want to use least resistance and stuff um so we we really realized that that was huge and we kind of hunted according to that
1: so did you end up changing how and where you mowed to get deer where you wanted them? Or did you just recognize, okay, the paths that we're using where they already are start being used. And then that changed where you hunted? So I guess what I'm trying to say is, did you change where you mowed or did you change where you hunted because of that observation?
2: We, we did a little bit of both. It kind of depended in the area. We definitely mowed certain areas after that first season to be able to, um, because we knew we could hunt them easily and we knew they'd get used. Um, but then also we did, we did move some of our hunting spots to, um, places that we already had mowed that we realized were just getting trampled on basically. And also we did, um, some of those mowed areas, we would, we realized like, man, okay, this is getting like a ton of traffic. Um, let's mow it a little bit more and add another clover plot. So like right now in 2022, we have three clover plot, four, four clover plots now. Um, so you can kind of see how that's expanded. Um, and that, a lot of that came through mowing certain areas and kind of seeing where the deer wanted to go now that we had opened some areas up.
1: Yeah. So tell me more about that. So, you know, on the food plot side, year one, you had the big food plot up front. You did some different things. Um, I'm sure over the years you've, you've, you've adjusted, you've tweaked. Some things didn't work out. Some things did. Where do things stand now with how you look at food? And how you're putting in those food plots because i mean even though you have a guy who's helping you put in these plots you still have to pay him for his hourly work so i'm sure you're trying to get more efficient and more cost effective Mm -hmm. with all that so where has has your several year-long lesson taken you to now what's it going to look like here in 2022
2: yeah so one of the first things matt ross told us was just because there's uh open canopy here does not mean that you should put a food plot here, and that kind of led us to um, like deciding to not do a lot of work that first year. But yeah, from from first year to for, to this management season, um, we just we did put a couple plots in where um, we tested the soil and we thought it'd be the best. Um, where did we find like those the soil maps? With that, trying okay. to think about where we found those soil maps at. Okay. Um, uh, Matt like Ross printed off a ton of things and gave it to us Um, I should ask him Um, but we got basically uh, a map of what soil would be good so we went off of those for the future years and um, I guess just getting off what Nate said seeing about seeing where those dense travel um, areas were uh, we would start with doing timber work in those spots and then and that was probably like more year two is is let's let's work the timber around this area and maybe get some more sunlight and then see how they use it and then year three was okay let's burn this area now since there's been more sunlight um, and it's able to actually run fire through it and then um, this year's kind of turned into a great let's let's plant it with something um, whether that's um, some warm season grasses we have or uh, clover mix yeah we're wanting to get into the more like natural just uh, let's just make the food sources that are naturally in the, in the seed bank. Let's like just try to build those up. So that's why we're doing so much timber cutting because, um, yeah, food plots are great, but we really want like the whole 80 to just be a food source for these deer. Um, but I, I guess like one thing that's really transformer plots is not, um, just not being boxed in and also just like trying to get as many resources as possible. Um, we have one of our best plots is like basically smack middle of our ground. Um, really close, like surrounded by good bedding, but also like only a hundred yards, 80 to hundred yards from our big bean and corn plot that we rotate. Um, and Sean Luckto from Harlem bow hunter, we had him down to walk last year and he was like, man, this area right here, it's already a little open, but this would be like primo for a nice transition plot of clover before they got out there. Um, so we've taken just these ideas from other land managers that they've really liked it and clover, man, it's just so easy. Like that's, I think why we just, we, we go to clover because, um, Obviously, you could just frost seed that. Try to get some open soil on there, um, which we usually mow and then spray it to try to kill that grass. Um, yeah, if you're if you're able to spray it early, burn it, and then frost seed it, I mean, you can really cut out the the farmer. Yeah, and then basically our our most recent plot that we actually are just making this year, we have haven't hunted it, just like in the works right now. Um, we were just it was it's in our southeast corner where we uh, we shot two bucks right in this area. Actually, we've shot three over the last three years within 50 yards of where we are making this plot because we're just like, man, they use so many different trails in this area. Let's just have like a tiny, I mean, is it a eighth of an acre maybe? Yeah. Back there where it's just like, we just have a little clover right here just to stop, them. like just get them to pause when they're coming through here. Just have like a little destination before they go and chase the yeah. doe or go and bed down or something like that. So it's just been kind of learning where they want to be and adding that.
0: You match your symptoms to the doctor recommended prescription and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types, plus a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at UrgentCareKit.com slash MeatEater and use promo code MeatEater. That's promo code MeatEater at UrgentCareKit.com slash MeatEater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you oughta, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, The reason they don't, because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust resistant technology. Your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So you
1: talked about how much timber factored into things in year two and in these years since. That's another one of those deals that I think probably is maybe underutilized by new land managers because it seems a little bit harder or a little bit more intimidating. What was that like for you guys early on? Was that like, Hey, let's just jump right into it. Or were you a little bit like, I don't know exactly what we're doing here.
2: We were, we were pretty antsy, almost too antsy. Like looking back at it, I would have been like, if I could go back in time and tell myself like, you need to slow down and you need to go learn a bunch of things before you get into this, because, um, it's definitely like, it's definitely learning curve and like, man, timber cutting can, uh, like not just scary, but like timber cutting can like put you in a bad way. If you're not, if you're not being safe about it, just because you're dealing with, um, big, heavy trees. Some of them have, uh, if you're, if you're cutting like honey locusts, like we have down here, they have three inch thorns. And so like, just being like overly safe, I think, um, was definitely something I would tell my, my previous self, but, like, we, just, we were antsy as heck to just like, start cutting different things. And we, we really knew what timber we wanted to get rid of. We wanted to get rid of hedge, locusts. Um, we wanted to get rid of small walnuts that weren't going to be any good for the timber market. And then we really wanted to open up um, our oaks. Um, we wanted to kind of – we had different like tree species we wanted to hinge cut. We wanted to hinge cut some elms and things like that. And then some trees we just wanted to kill off. We wanted to kill off hickories. Um, and so we kind of just went through, we went to those management units and we were like, what do we need to get rid of here? And then we would just start getting rid of it and where do we want to have more sunlight? And basically the whole 80 could have more sunlight still to this day. It could have more sunlight basically everywhere, but we just kind of, uh, picked certain days and we would, um, we would girdle, cut the entire tree down or hinge cut, uh, depending on what, which tree it was or where it was. Um, and then we, we'd spray it and just knock out some of those species, but I, I would almost say you can do more help to wildlife management with a chainsaw than you can with, with a, a food plot, 100%, just because it does so much for other animals and species as well, um, all the birds on the property. Um, and then you've got to talk, I mean, think about all the, all the food sources that are now getting sunlight. Um, one thing Matt said to us that really stuck is like, right now in the 80, year one, we have all shade-loving species. What you want is sun-loving species. And that like really, man, that, that triggered something in us. we were like, okay, we need way more sun to hit the forest floor. Um, even just this, um, this shed, shed hunting season, we, uh, we dropped a ton of timber this off season again. And in one of uh, our timber cutting spots, I was doing some shed hunting around it, and sure enough, I found the shed to the biggest buck we know that made it through literally in a pile of chainsaw dust that we had cut like a few weeks before. <laughs> so he's. Great hanging out in this new disturbance and it's, uh, it's a good bedding area, but also he has this new food source right now in Kansas. Like it's a little earlier for things to be budding up, but it's, it's starting, the green up is like about to happen. So he, I mean, that deer was probably bedding in that area with the new cover or eating on some of those, that browse and that, that had been a hundred feet up in the air, um, before this. And I mean, that was just like a eye opening thing right there. So yeah, th- those are some of the biggest, um, timber cutting things we've done.
1: So you mentioned several different types of timber work though. There's taking down full trees, there was hinge cutting, there was girdling. How did you guys go about, you know, how are you choosing where to use each one of those different tools or when, or how big of an area, like, how'd you go about making those decisions?
2: Yeah, it really just depends on the tree. So if the tree leaves, which is what the deer, okay. So deer will eat tree leaves or they'll eat like a fruit. say like an acorn or uh, something like that. Um, and so basically it went off that decision knowing like, okay, um, some of these leaves the deer will eat, and some of them they don't really care for. So that was that was a big thing. Um and other other trees like a hedge tree, you basically I mean, at least the hedge trees on our ground, you can't really cut the whole tree down. It's kind of they're so like big and just entangled and massive that in the heart and the woods it's so hard that it's basically like, okay, we need to um these puppies to try to kill them which girdling is like just killing the outer cambium layer and then we'll spray it um which will kill the tree but you don't have to cut it down because once you cut the tree down man you just covered up a ton of ground and then you have a ton more work to do so we're like okay let's kill some of these trees without covering up the entire um having a huge footprint on the ground and then other trees say like um um we know like elms deer love to to eat an elm so we, we just hinge cut those things in certain areas that we want deer to like have food source. So we hinge cut, which basically like we're, we're, we're hinge cutting only small trees that we can basically cut 90% of the tree through and then push them over with our hands. So it's like a, I don't know, a six inch diameter, um, tree or less. And so that will, that will create a food source and we know deer like that food source. And then I don't know. Um, so other ones, cedars we just would get rid of because we don't want them to be too thick. Um kind of wanted just a dead like a dispersed cedar yeah. area. I, I would, would say um gosh, if it was a big like a tree like eighteen inches in diameter or bigger, we're almost always just girdling it because um one, that like just starts the dying process with that tree. And uh those some of those first trees that we girdled, um, we've been starting to cut that down and they're so much easier to to manage and um if, like we found out really quickly if we dropped a big tree, um, we weren't getting very much done in the day. So girdling is just the easy, quick way. Uh, it doesn't um, kill all the shade, but it does a pretty dang good job for uh, really, I don't know, two minutes, uh, two minute cut around the tree. Yeah, and uh, we're actually on our property this, uh, the next two days because we're we're just uh, dropping a ton of timber in little bedding pockets that we want. now. Now that we have our kind of our food plots established on the property, we're just going to cut them basically where the wind would be good for us hunting and then also for accessing and stuff like that. So it's just getting the sunlight there and then opening up those areas. Um, and then you just kind of have to learn what species you have in the property and which ones you should keep around, which ones you should get rid of. Um, this last year, we've actually cut down a few oaks because in our oak area, they're just too cluttered. So they're not really producing that many acorns. So it's kind of like, okay, I have to cut some, some oaks down in order to, really have healthy oaks so it's been uh just a learning curve on which ones we want to keep around and stuff like that
1: what's the biggest um lesson you've learned on the timber side of things four years in now um is there anything that you would like to go back and tell you know 2019 Nathan thomas about that uh, might have made things mm-hmm. happen faster or better has anything come to mind
2: yeah, right away, I would say what's really only beginning to hit like in starting year four. Um, we would cut down like a handful of trees in a, in a unit and be like, man, we just did so much work. Mm-hmm. In reality, I wish my 2019 self would have known to like make it make this whatever, like one like eighth acre area, like cut it all, cut, like cut most of the most to all of the trees in that area because that's when you're actually going to see noticeable changes. We'd see like we drop a couple trees or girdle a couple here and while yeah sure it was starting to get uh, to a better unit um, we didn't really find out till the last last year that um, it took quite a bit of like really opening up an area to get that sun really to the forest floor because as the sun's like rotating throughout the day um, it's really only in that if you don't cut a ton uh, in the area, it's really only on that that little sunspot for a little little bit of time. so um, cutting cutting more uh, than less, I would say. Mm-hmm. and then just patience. still to this day we have to remind ourselves that there is a ton of timber like you could you could cut timber every single day and like still have a ton of timber out here. so just being patient and also just just absorbing it um, and just making it um, just making it a thing that you look forward to instead of just like a job or task that you're trying to trying to get done with because it can drive you crazy when you cut for 10 hours a day and then you just do walk about and be like, man, there's so much more that needs to be changed. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's just going to be a long-term thing. I mean, this property still won't be exactly what we want in 10 years, but that's just, it's, it's a, it's a constant progression. Basically there's, there's certain, like there's certain areas on a property where I'm like, man, like we yeah. have, we have areas of hedge that are completely unpassable. Like, it's like, man, how are we ever going to make change in that area? But just little by little, tree by tree. Um, And that's, yeah, that's that's the biggest thing we've learned. Hmm.
1: So food plots first, cutting trees second. Third, I know you mentioned that fire was the next big step you guys took. How did you learn to safely use fire? Like, what was that process like? And then what have those prescribed burns been like to actually manage and be a part
2: of? Yeah. So again, our farmer buddy, Kevin, that first year, he was like, you want to do a fire? And we were like, 100% we want to do a fire. Um, so he brought the drip torches and we kind of talked through some lines and stuff like that, where we wanted the fire to go wind direction, humidity, all that stuff. Um, man, that's, a, that's another thing. If I could go back in time, I would uh, definitely do things different. I would, I would have way more hands on deck, um, uh, because, no matter how protected your fire is, no matter how good your lines are, like being like new with fire. It's still it's going to scare the hell out of you. <laughs> like watching your beloved ground, just like, just go to 10 foot flames on certain areas. is just like, wow. Okay. I hope that stops. Um, um, things like that. But it's basically just like being overly safe. Um, that's, that's our biggest thing. The nice thing, like what we talked about is on, um, the West side of our property, it's all road, big gravel road. So I'm like, okay, it's not going there. And then through our property, we have a Creek. So it's was like, okay, it's not going there. You basically got to worry about it, it. Like going on to the neighbors in the North and South. So we usually try to burn with like an East or West wind and then have some really good um, burn lines and stuff like that. But just being overly safe to where like, you can be confident and, like, okay, even if the winds were gusting 20 miles an hour and the humidity was 10%, it's going nowhere. That's like, that's like being just being overly safe, but Tom, yeah. I would say, um, one of the biggest things that I it took me forever to wrap my head around was like how the heck with all this shade how are we going to get any um, fire through our timber? Which it was always like good to to burn the like brome and and the hot the warm grasses, but really to make change in our, in our eighty we wanted to get uh, the end timber burns and only like this year did we really like wrap our head uh, head around like what do we really need to see in the weather front moving forward to get a good productive burn and. Um, we finally got, I don't know, we probably burnt eight to 10 acres, uh, in the timber, uh, this year, which we've like maybe done like a, a quarter of that in the past. And just, it, all, it really just comes down to having higher, uh, high enough, uh, wind speed and, and low enough humidity to, to do that burn. And some, some, some of those days are, um, are like quote unquote, like risky days to burn, um, because of the low humidity, but. Uh, if you have really, really good fire, fire breaks, um, it's some of the only days you can burn if you're in a really, really shaded area. And, and girdling and dropping trees is only, only help the fuel source on the 80. So if I was a first time uh, landowner, I'd be, I'd be making sure that there's more sun hitting the ground if I plan on doing a, a burn in year two. And um, just knowing, being with people that know what they're doing and what to look out for on mm-hmm. the, the weather I think we were talking to the land legacy guys and they're like man if you have a hard time like finding people that will help you out with the burn just go to the local fire department and see if uh, you can find some guys that would volunteer like a few hours of their time because I mean if you're volunteering at a firefighter they're like okay you either like you either maybe bored some days or you're like you' are you're a pyro like you want to burn stuff so he's like go go to the local fire departments and I bet you can find a handful of guys that would help you know know what they're doing with fire and then also just be able to be more hands on deck um, but yeah, every fire we have, um, burn lines around the entire circumference of what we are burning. And then we have, um, tons of water. We got um, a bunch of like high power leaf blowers that will put up fire. We have drip torches, um, and then a ton of guys trying to help us out. So that's the, bi- I think, I got. think the biggest mistake you can make with fire is like rushing into it in a day. Um, like not having your fire breaks, 100% all, all in the clear, um, all, all set, uh, that's like the biggest thing that I would I'd warn about. Like just have everything ready to go, um, whether you're doing that in January and then you burn it in, in February or March. Um, definitely have everything set. Don't ever like just light a fire thinking it's hopefully going to gonna be a good situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the, the feedback from that has also been amazing. Like the turkeys on the fire, just they love that stuff. Um, and just so the the different plants and stuff that have come out of that has been really interesting to see. Um, the same day I found the shed antler this off season um, from the biggest buck we have hanging around um, by a bunch of stuff, by a bunch of timber that we, we fell in the property we did was the day after we did a prescribed burn. And when I was walking to go get the UTV, I bumped like 15 turkeys off, off of the burn that we did the day before. So I'm like, man, this stuff has like, sometimes it, it feels like, this management is such a slow process, but within like those like few hours, I found a shed by a bunch of timber we dropped, and I've just bombed ten or fifteen turkeys off of a fresh burn we did the day before. I'm like, man, when you make change and you disturb the property, you are gonna see the changes for sure. So,
1: I mean, I think you you kind of just answered it, but would you say that even though this prescribed fire, though those projects, I mean, as you're describing them, it's it's a, a good amount of work. It Takes special care and preparation it's kind of a lot for the average person to try to do is it worth all that headache
2: 100 percent. yeah i mean the hunting on our little track of 80 acres has has only gotten better and like it's just been like we have been managing through our brains we always say to everybody we manage the property way more than we hunt it, like way more um and it has just been i mean our church population in our area has like boomed and then you can't like just say it's our 80 acres but like it has to have been helping i mean when we were here our first spring you couldn't hear a gobble and i mean we've i mean last year we called in a group of eight toms to our ground so it's like okay how much can it change how much can our 80 change in the in the grand scheme of things and stuff it's like man you gotta you just have to think as a land manager that like every little thing you're doing is making a difference um i mean this last year in our in our timber and we're also learning to hunt it better but just with the management stuff I mean, we had a a series of hunts that, I mean, we saw at least a three and a half real buck or better, like six, seven, eight hunts in a row. And and that, that just, that just shows you, man, like, okay, we have 80 acres, but we are seeing good deer every single hunt. So they want to be here like bad. So that's just like, I mean, like, and and even like turkeys being in the, in the burn the next day, like they know change is happening and they want to be there and they're going to be there. So man, if, even if you own 10, 20 acres, Implement as much as you can of this stuff because it will, in our in our view, in our opinion, it, it's making fast, fast difference.
1: What's the most satisfying part of this kind of work, this project in general? Is it just the better deer hunting? Is it is it the, the better wildlife sightings? Is it just the act of doing it? I mean, what is it about this that's been the most rewarding for you? Ooh,
2: that's a tough question. I mean... I mean, definitely, uh, deer hunting has been a huge thing. Um, like there's, there's a few deer, um, that we've killed in the last, I would say the last two years, the first year was basically just dumb luck. I feel like, um, just being on a good property where deer want to be naturally, um, and killing deer. But the last two years we have killed deer because of how we manage it. 100%. Um, the what 2020 was when we had Spencer, um new obviously to the ground and he he shot a, a an awesome buck in um our late um late season still standing beans um and that's just something as land manager just like leave food out there um and he came out of an area that we had dropped a bunch of timber and we knew like that was really good bedding, and so that's like okay they're gonna bed there you have late season food source i mean i see that as like okay Yeah. Spencer's rifle killed that deer, but that's management in the off season that killed that deer. Um, and then you also look at like this last December, we, uh, Thomas killed a buck December 18th Yeah, yeah. and then our uh, brother-in-law Tony killed one the 29th. And so we killed two late season, December bucks in the timber. They weren't on the food plot. Um, they weren't in the standing crops. They, They were in the timber where we had dropped trees, created sunlight, really warm bedding for a cold December day and food sources that the deer wanted to eat. Um, and so, man, like those deer, like that's, that's the land management is killing those deer. <laughs> so like, like that has been probably some of the most rewarding stuff. I don't know, Tom, do you have any, other- yeah, no, I, I, I would say it's, when uh december 31st because that's that's the last day here in kansas to shoot a buck when it flips over to january first it's it's really honestly not a, a depressing day um towards those last days of december you're almost like looking forward to management season because um you're just like the tense and the the stress from the season is just all lifted and now it's the pressure that we all put on ourselves but it's like Oh, now I can go walk around the 80. This is going to be fun. Like I've done this like 10 times since owning it in three years because we're just always so, so careful about it. But gosh, just the, just the cycle, I would say the cycle of, of deer hunting and what it brings, um, each, each different season, whether it's management shed season, um, scouting season, velvet season, um, the fall, it's just, it's this, it's this 360 cycle that you just love. hmm
1: what do you not like? Well, like what, when you, when you look at what all the different things that this kind of project entails, what are the parts that suck? What are the parts that make you think, gosh, some days wish I took up golfing or something else? <laughs> I don't know. Is there anything yeah. that stands out? Yeah.
2: There is. Um, and that is still, I don't know when you, when you get the text that you're Definitely the 200 inch buck gets shot by the neighbor. That, that's never good. Um, but no, like that's like, that was the most frustrating thing. The first um, two years we had like massive um, Kansas bucks on this place and we couldn't like, uh, we were still tr- figuring out our, our uh, hunting strategies here. And we, I mean, we let slip through our fingers. Looking back on that, it's like, okay, give us that deer this year. Cause that deer is done for just cause we've learned how to hunt it better, but no, like, in all seriousness, even that's great. I mean, us Nebraska boys that didn't own any property were like, Oh man, chasing deer that are way bigger than we ever thought we'd see is just amazing. But, um, we honestly, every day down here is like a come true, 100% whether I'm going into the stand on November 1st or I'm ripping the saw January, February timeframe. Um, man, it's just every single day is great. I don't care how hard I work. Like <laughs> we, we work ourselves way too hard. Most days you don't eat lunch. We're just out there just hammering away. Um, And so it's just like, I don't know whether you're just sweating like crazy in the summer and putting, I mean, I've, we've had some seriously, uh, long and tough days out here, but it just, the, whether you're driving home after it or you're just, um, hanging out at the property and just like it's after you put in a full day of work, it's just rewarding every single day, no matter what you're doing. So I I don't know if there's a, I don't know if there's a bad thing. Can't, I can't think of anything. Yeah.
1: So you're driving down the road. And you come around the corner, come over a bridge, you drop down towards a nice creek and you see two guys standing off the side of the road. Their truck's parked off there. They've got camo boots on. Maybe they're pulling a SUV or not SUV, a UTV off the trailer. And you pull off the side next to them and start chatting with them. And they tell you, hey, you know, we just bought this 40 acres here. It's been a dream. We finally were able to afford it. We went on it together, whatever it is. We're going to try to make this thing into a great place to hunt you've got a minute you have one minute before you need to hit the road again and get back to your families what would be the very most important thing you could leave with those two guys if you had just that minute to share with them the most distilled bit of wisdom you've gained over the last four years what would you tell them
2: okay this is Nate first I'll give him my minute you talk so you can get your in after this okay first of all location is huge I was, I was going to Iowa and I was going to Kansas cause I wanted to find a property where I'd kill big bucks. They, isn't Mark's the situation. Yes, that they're there. Purchased. So I'm like, I'd shake their hands and be like, congrats guys. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. it's a good area. Um, because in our first year we were like, we, we had a 180 inch buck and then our next year we had a 215, 210 inch buck that we were chasing. So I'm like, okay, nice. we picked, we picked the right area. So I'm like, guys, great job. You picked the right area. Secondly, I'd be like, okay. Um, I don't know how much work you want to put in here, but if you want to like really manage this wealth of properties, I'd, I'd go to your local dealer and I'd buy, um, a couple nice chainsaws. I'd buy a mower and then I'd start knocking on doors and introducing yourself to the neighbors. Just get to know the area, get to know the farmers in the area and have fun guys. <laughs> That's, about.
1: All right. That's a good
2: minute. <laughs> oh man. I think I would, uh, mine would be, mine would be much, uh, much less complex than they I would just look them in the eye and tell them to to enjoy it every like every single minute of it because sometimes I guess it, it could be a, a downside of being in the hunting industry, but there are some times when I'm just like like we just went down to the 80 and that was that was a work trip. That wasn't a, a fun hunting trip. We need to we need to slow down and we need to enjoy this property for the really the reason we purchased it, which is uh, being um, spending time on it being around the wildlife, but ultimately being around our family. And, um, I think just not, not taking the management and everything that you have professionally going on too seriously when you're on your ground, just, mm-hmm. just enjoy for, for what it is and, and bring the people down there that, uh, you want to have a fun time with. So mm-hmm. mine's, mine's simple and not even really deer hunting related. So, yeah,
1: I love it. So what's next? What do you guys see as the the things you're most excited to work on next or that you think are going to make the biggest difference in the coming year or two? What's really getting you excited to see what's going to happen?
2: Man, we, uh, I don't know. Like, I, like obviously we've done all of our, like we've done an insane amount of timber work this year. So like, okay, that's going to be better. Hopefully just more. Do you want to be here? But, um, as far as like, I'll just go on like the hunting side of things. Um, we're just kind of waiting for like that really uh next big deer to chase. That's kind of been like our antsy thing this last year. Um, it was like kind of a, uh, a, a weird hunting year for us on the 80 at least. Like, like I was kind of saying all the years prior, like we had a lot of big deer to chase. Well, at least one or two, I think it's really just, yeah, the the natural cycle of a big deer coming through. We just had one of those like off years last mm-hmm. year, which is three and a half year olds just everywhere. Just gosh, eight to 10 different ones. Just, um, 120 to 150 inch, three and a half year olds, maybe a four and a half year old in there. Um, and like, and I mean, it was amazing cause we were seeing like those deer every single time, but like now we're kind of licking our lips, just waiting for like another, um, big stud to give us a, an opportunity to hunt it just because we have kind of figured out the hunting and the managing side of things well enough to where like, we feel like we might have a shot at it. <laughs> of course it's a big, like smart deer and they'll probably still get the best of us. But, um, yeah, we're kind of just wait. At least I'm waiting for like that next big one to show up, um, to be able to put these things to use again. Um, but yeah, we also thought it'd be a kind of a fun idea. We haven't, we haven't, uh, finalized this yet, but we thought it'd be fun if one of us hunted, uh, public the whole fall and one of us hunted the 80. Mm-hmm. Um, we have public, I mean, a couple of different parcels within uh five mile radius. So we were thinking it'd be kind of fun to, uh, split up the fall. One of us is hunting the public. One of us is hunting the RE and seeing who can uh, tag out first. If, if, if having private land is really that big of an uh, advantage or not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
1: it, so if the public land guy kills a better deer than the private land guy, what's the reward he gets? Does he get to like, Correct. I don't know, you got you to gotta drag all his deer for the next five years or something?
2: <laughs> yeah. Maybe he's going to be cameraman for a while. I don't know. <laughs> that, yeah.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Well, where can, uh, where can folks go to see this? I know you guys have been documenting what you've done so far. Can you fill everyone in on, on where they can find these videos that you have done so far and, and how they can stay up to date?
2: Yeah, so you can watch a lot of our Kansas 80 uh, land series stuff on our YouTube channel, which is was which is just identical draw. You can uh, watch me shoot that buck over the beans, uh, Spencer's hunt. And then we also filmed like our whole conversation with Matt Ross, where you can see us breaking down all the different... Uh, management units there so um you can basically see everything we've talked about uh, on that youtube channel and and just different other uh public land hunts that we've done in gosh nebraska south dakota western states um we try to put out just a lot of uh knowledgeable stuff as well just like if you are wanting to learn how to cut certain things or whatnot. Um, hopefully we put out information that is useful to people learning how to, whether it's a girdle cut, hinge cut, how we make little bedding pockets, why we put uh, food plots in certain areas, how we're accessing. So we, we, really try to break down our idea as much as possible on the, on the hunting and the, uh, managing side on all of our social channels. So, yeah.
1: Awesome. Well, I appreciate you guys sharing this experience. It's, it's pretty fun to hear about. You know what a couple young guys can do with some sweat, some stick and uh and a good attitude. So I can't wait to see what happens next on the Kansas 80. Mm,
2: yeah, thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Thank you.
1: All right, that's it for today. Thank you for tuning in. Get out there. If you own land and get your hands dirty, get to work. If Nate and Thomas can do it, you can too. And if you do not own land, but it's something you've thought about, or if your family is thinking about going down this road, I hope you'll pass along this episode, share it, let other people be inspired by it and remember that it is possible. So with that all out of the way, thank you. And until next time, stay wired to hunt.
0: Hey, everybody knows Weber grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber searwood pellet grill. With a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal,